0: There are many stories that are fueled by the dramatic eventual return of a primary character. Think about Odysseus' return to Ithaca following the Trojan War in Homer's The Odyssey. Think about the return of Jane Eyre to Thornfield Hall. Think about the return of Dorothy to Kansas following her journey to Oz. Think about the return of the King in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And for goodness sake, think about the return of the Jedi. (laughs) In the Star Wars saga, it's often the return of a primary character that gives to a story its what? Narrative energy? In the story of Christianity, which by the way, I happen to believe is a true story. In the story of Christianity, the eventual return of Jesus, often described in theological circles as the second coming of Jesus, figures prominently. In our creeds and in our scriptures, we hear this idea over and over again. That one day, and it's a long held Christian idea, a long-held, in fact, beyond an idea, Christian conviction that one day Jesus will return in order to make right what is distorted or wrong, thereby completing what he inaugurated through his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. And the theological train of thought in that is that the second coming of Jesus will finish what the first coming of Jesus began. This portion of theology, by the way, is called eschatology from the Greek word eschaton, which means last thing or final part. So, if ever you hear reference being made to eschatology or eschatological theology, know that what's being described is an exploration of the final parts of human history or the world's history. And Christianity has long believed that the arrival of Jesus, the coming of Jesus... Is instrumental, uniquely instrumental in those final parts, even if we don't understand that, even if we can't fit that into an equation. The church has proclaimed it, and historically the church has believed it. Jesus finishes what Jesus begins. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I'm telling you nothing new when I say that very few subjects have garnered more fervent theological attention over the centuries of Christianity than the second coming of Jesus. Entire systems of eschatological thought have been built around it. Books have been written, movies have been made. New denominations have been formed, often revolving around these questions of when Jesus will return, how Jesus will return, and what will transpire when Jesus does return. And what I have found over the years of ministry is that if Christian people start to get specific or passionate about their eschatology, they will often also begin to become more rigid and more literalistic in their interpretation of Scripture. I have been in many Bible studies in which faithful church people have pointed to a cryptic verse in the New Testament book of Revelation and said something like this, perhaps not word-for-word, word, but something like this, you know, I have always believed that this reference to the beast in Revelation is a clear reference to Hitler. That must be the beast. And over here in Revelation when this final war is, talking about, is being talked about or discussed, this Armageddon, that has to be the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or maybe the continuing conflict between Israel and Palestine. And this portion of Revelation over here where it talks about nothing being bought or sold without the mark of the beast, well, that is clearly a reference to cryptocurrency. Therefore, they will often be inclined to conclude, the coming of Jesus must be close. And by the way, I'm not mocking this eschatology, but I do want to illuminate it. It's present, it's all around us. It might be in your family, it might be in your network of friends, it might be in your own system of thought. And lest you think that I'm exaggerating, A clerk at Duane Reed the other day asked me what I did for a living. And it was in the context of a conversation. No one was behind me in line. It was an appropriate question based upon what we were discussing, and when I told him that I am a Christian pastor, his response was this, oh, we need more pastors, which to be honest is not something I hear everywhere I go. (laughs) When I tell people what I do vocationally, I do not frequently get this response. Oh, you know, we need more of you clergy types. We really, really do. That's not normally what I hear, but it's exactly what he said. And so I asked him, why is that? Why do you think we need more pastors? This was his response. Well, I believe that we're living in the last days and we need more pastors so that more people will hear about Jesus before he comes again, eschatology. And quite frankly, it does not surprise me that all of these different and specific eschatological viewpoints exist and that people take them so seriously because after all, listen to what Jesus said in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel today. In those days, Jesus proclaims, in those days, referring to some unspecified time, in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will no longer reflect its light, and stars will be dropping from the sky. Exaggerated imagery, you see, which interestingly is a characteristic of a form of literature known as apocalyptic literature, and that word apocalypse simply means revelation. It was a it was a school of thought. It was a form of teaching, and Jesus is employing it here, and one of the characteristics is exaggerated imagery, colorful imagery, specifically designed to illuminate or emphasize the urgency of a point that is being made. The sun will be darkened in the sky. The moon will no longer reflect its light. Stars will be falling. Then, Jesus said, then the people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and glory. Oh, can you blame anyone for wanting to be literalistic in the interpretation of that scripture? Can you blame anyone for wanting to be specific about it and to attach a timetable to it? I get it. Jesus seems to be describing these cosmically significant events. Why wouldn't the church want to be literal about that? I wouldn't want the, the church not want to be as specific as possible. And yet, and yet, There are two verses in this scripture that have long led me to believe that an exclusively literalistic interpretation of the words is not what Jesus ultimately had in mind. In one of those verses, for example, did you hear it? Jesus says this, This generation, and we cannot be too creative in our interpretation of that, when Jesus says this generation, he is speaking of his generation, which was 2,000 years ago. This generation shall not pass away until these things happen, until what I'm describing transpires. And the fact that we are sitting here today 2,000 years later and have not yet experienced the return of Jesus in power and glory is a fairly substantive indicator in my mind that Jesus must have also been describing a present reality, not merely a future reality. And then in the second verse of scripture that is on my mind, Jesus says this, about that day or hour, and he's speaking of the day and the hour when the Son of Man shall return. About that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the sun. Which clearly communicates that any effort to attach a specific timetable to the end of days is woefully misguided at best, since Jesus makes clear in this moment that such timetables are completely unknowable. Could it be then? Could it be that when Jesus tells us to pay attention, to stay alert and awake, for the coming Son of Man, could it be that he's not inviting us to solve a problem about the future? to speculate about future events and timetables, could it be instead that Jesus is inviting us into what might be described as an anticipatory life, a life of alertness in which we actively wait for the redemptive activity of God in every one of our circumstances, believing in our soul that we will indeed experience an arrival of the living Christ in even our most profound suffering. Perhaps not the kind of arrival that eliminates the suffering altogether, but even more miraculously, perhaps an arrival that enables us to approach the suffering differently. Could it be that Jesus is inviting us to wait, not for some distant divine arrival, but for a God who perpetually arrives. Waiting is hard for us, isn't it? In fact, a philosopher by the name of Tom Petty (laughs) once wrote that the waiting is the hardest part. Case in point, I stood in front of my Keurig the other day, watching those last few drops fall into that stupid mug, all the while muttering to myself, when are they going to invent a faster way to make a cup of coffee? (laughs) The waiting is the hardest part. Yet, it is to a life of active, anticipatory waiting to which Jesus calls us. God is always on the way, Jesus seems to be saying to us. God is always on the way. Therefore, wait alertly and with your spiritual eyes wide open. Wait with an eagerness to love and a compassionate spirit so that you might be fully available to the arrival of God in the nooks and crannies of your daily pilgrimage. See, I do not believe that the most urgent waiting that Christian people do is for the final arrival of Christ. I believe the most urgent waiting we do is for the daily arrival of Christ. And he always Mm -hmm. arrives. Therefore, Jesus says, keep awake, keep alert, pay attention and wait actively. In her book entitled an Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor, describes the life of active waiting as a life of paying attention, which I greatly appreciate. I love that idea, that a life of active waiting is a life of paying attention. Looking twice, Taylor writes, looking twice at circumstances and moments and conversations and people that you would at first be inclined to ignore. Because in such a life, Taylor writes, in such a life of active waiting, every moment can become a sacrament. Every space can become a sanctuary. What might that kind of waiting look like in a human life? Well, maybe it looks something like this. Luke was a regular participant in a monthly worship service held at the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He spent the better portion of his vocation teaching, English literature, and writing at a community college. But his addiction to heroin resulted in a jail sentence. He entered into recovery for the very first time while incarcerated, and he approached that recovery with great seriousness, which is exactly how he approached his Christian faith. In one of those monthly worship services during the season of Advent, 19 of us including Luke, gathered in a guarded room. And we had a conversation about this matter of waiting because it was Advent. Waiting is all there is to do in a place like this, Luke said that day. I wait for the lights to go off at night and I wait for the lights to come on in the morning. I wait for my next court date and the next visit from my sister. I wait for my next meal and the next loud noise. And the next unannounced inspection of my cell. Waiting is all there is to do in a place like this. But he quickly added, I'm not waiting around these days. I've done too much of that. I'm not waiting around anymore. Instead, he said, I'm trying my best these days to wait within. Now, this was a guy who had taught English literature. Words were important to him. Phrases were important to him. And I had never heard that phrase before, waiting within in this context. So I asked him about it and he explained it this way. I look upon waiting around as being the same as doing nothing. Wishing for things to be better, but doing nothing to make them better. Like I said, I've spent too much of my life waiting around I don't want to do that anymore. Waiting within, he continued, that's something else because when I wait within moments instead of waiting around them, I make something at the moments so that the moments have a better chance of becoming prayers and good thoughts and kind gestures. I don't want to wait around anymore I'm trying to wait within, because waiting is all there is to do in a place like this. and So I want to make sure that I'm waiting well. And as I listened to him that day, and if I close my eyes, I can picture the dynamics of that room. But as I listened to him that day, I sensed that I was hearing from the heart of somebody who truly believed that in the act of waiting he was doing, he was actually engaging in a transformational communion with the living Jesus who was daring to arrive even in the institutional spaces of the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Advent, among other things, gives to us an opportunity, a unique opportunity, to focus on our waiting. And all of us, I think, are waiting for something. We're waiting for test results, or we're waiting for a healing, or we're waiting for a reconciliation, or we're waiting for a development. All of us are waiting for something. And Advent, I think, gives to us a unique opportunity to focus on our waiting. And the irony of that is that this season happens during a time when the cultural pressure to rush around is more intense than it ever gets over the course of the year. It's the beauty of Advent. Stands against that to a certain extent. And that leads me to this spiritual inquiry. What What is your waiting like as Advent begins this year? Is it a passive waiting? Or is it an act of waiting? Is it a waiting around, if I can borrow Luke's vocabulary, or is it a waiting within? Is it a waiting that emerges from the conviction that the love of Jesus might just arrive at a work meeting, whether people name it that way or not, or an email conversation, or the singing of a favorite carol, or a quiet moment of prayer on the subway or in the Uber ride? I'm weird enough to believe that one day Jesus will finally return. Hear that. I have to believe that. But I don't believe that the most urgent waiting that we do is for the final arrival of Christ. I believe that the most urgent waiting we do is for the arriving that Christ does in our present circumstances, our present tears, And giggles our present heartbreaks and breakthroughs and so as we begin this season of Advent together I will offer to you this encouragement hurry up and wait and let your waiting begin to shape a mind and a spirit that is fully receptive fully available to the redemptive work that the arriving Jesus is already accomplishing. This arriving Jesus in whose name we gather, this arriving Jesus in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.